can't talk all day. We can't talk all day, Rebecca, but we have to talk for at least another hour while we're recording, which is right now. Because we were cackling like old biddies. We were, and we should continue that on the microphones. What do you say? Here we go. My name is Dr. Kirk Hanna. I'm a therapist and a professor, and this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. Who are you, Rebecca? Uh, my name is Rebecca. Little Rebecca. <laughs> my name is Rebecca Bloom. I am five foot two. I specialize in complex post-traumatic stress. I work mostly with adults in South Seattle. So let's talk about Shanita Connor. Okay. So did you watch the uh, documentary, Nothing Compares? Nothing Compares? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, it's beautiful. It's on Amazon right now. And one of the things that was really interesting is that they talked about when she tore up that picture of the Pope. Um, it ended her big time financial big arena career mm-hmm. and that she produced something like 11 albums after that mm-hmm. and very few people heard those albums and so i wanted to read an abbreviated version of my favorite song mm-hmm. just to set the stage for those who weren't around at the time mm-hmm. shanita connor was an overnight world sensation not only a beautiful voice like not just a beautiful voice, yeah. but like souls, like reached into your yeah. soul. And yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting chills thinking about the the <laughs> soulfulness the and, and yeah. the, the the power yet fr- fragile power. You know, the the real power that recognizes the reality of life, and and you just got that from the way that she looked and sang and sounded and moved. And we both sent we both sent each other our head shaved photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and. At the time, in the early 90s, I'm thinking it was, or late 80s, for a beautiful woman to shave her head or cut her hair very short was unheard of. It Outrageous. Was, it was, to, you know, today it's completely just, to some extent, normal. But back then it was just bizarre. And I remember lots of people saying, but she would be so beautiful if mm. she just grew out her hair. It, there's a lot of confusion about it. And so it was this perfect storm for her to rise to superpower. And then she, the height of her power and she's selling out arenas. Her career is set for her and she would have done amazing in the nineties. You know that she would. Oh yeah. Um, And she goes on Saturday night live, right? Yeah. And she impromptu has this picture of the Pope, which I learned in the documentary was the photo that was hanging on her mother's wall. Right. So, and the background on her, of her mother horribly abusive walks yeah. her out of the house um, horrible horrible yeah. woman so her mom was extremely abusive and was also using a lot of catholicism and a lot of justification you know based on that. and also Sinead grew up with a lot of uh, religious abuse growing up right and also you know Sinead O'Connor knew the atrocities of the catholic church and was doing this symbolic act of ripping up this picture of the Pope as a way of of saying something about all this stuff, right? And in today's world, you would get a lot of backlash, but you would get at least some support. You know, you mm-hmm. would, there would be some decorum at least. Well, and this is before, she is the first person to publicly, for me, acknowledge the atrocities of the Catholic Church. Like, yeah. This is before all of the abuse scandals. This is before anybody admits that popes serially rape children, right? Yeah, like way before. Yeah. And it's still 
uh, taboo, kind of, but back then it was crazy taboo. And everyone, even people who might have been on her side, if they knew what was going on, everyone turned on her. It, like Madonna it, turned on her. It, it was like she was this <laughs> crazy person and she crossed a line. Mm -hmm. And all she did was rip up a picture. Mm -hmm. Just think about that. Right. Think it's about what those people have done to others. <laughs> And then she just completely fell from grace overnight. I mean, yeah. everything turned around. Now, later in interviews, she would say, I don't give a shit. I didn't <laughs> want to be famous. Right. I, I never saw myself as a yeah. darling of the tabloid or of the middle class. You mm -hmm. know, I, I never wanted that. So the fact that I uh, fell from grace or, you know, fell out of favor, like, fuck it. I don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm me and that's just the way it's going to be. And, you know, I lived through that and I barely remember it really. Well, and I'm having a completely contrasting experience. I mean, the day that she died, I, it was like all of the women of my generation gathered together online to collectively mourn. But when it happened back then, were you? I, I was, I was heavy into my own discussion of my own childhood sexual abuse at that time. And so it really fit into my narrative. So do you remember people talking oh. about the context? Because I don't yeah. remember anyone oh. talking about I just remember that people were saying she's crazy and right. she, she did this crazy thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I which remember... Which is an old misogynistic you Right. Know, I remember the backlash so intensely. Yeah. But it was that day that she died was so intense. I texted you. I texted a ton of people in my life. Um, and it was like we all... All of these women in my life were mourning that, like, we were seen, we are seen as crazy to speak our truth, right? And and I know Sinead O'Connor was very public with her mental health issues and um, her her search for meaning in her life and her search for connection. And a, about a year before she died, one of her children committed suicide, or completed suicide. Right. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people are speculating that she couldn't sit with the pain mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, there's some evidence in her tweets or whatever that she was maybe contemplating. And I imagine, and maybe you know data on this, that she had been contemplating suicide for maybe her whole life based on her trauma. Uh, so in, it was like 94. Uh, so this is the th song, Thank You For Hearing Me. And um, it was introduced to me by an ex-lover at the time that was trying to make me feel better for breaking up with me. Uh, so each line that I'm going to say in the song repeats four times. I'm just going to say it once and I'm not going to sing it because unlike you, Kirk, I have a horrible voice. Yeah. Uh, so here are the lyrics to a song that if you're big, that you might not have heard. And if there's one thing that I hope this podcast does is that people go deeper into her library mm. because she created great music throughout her whole life. And because she spoke out against the atrocities of the Catholic Church that now we all know are true, you didn't hear a ton of this music. This is how misogyny works. Mm -hmm. So here's the song. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for seeing me and for not leaving me. Thank you for staying with me. Thank you for not hurting me. You are gentle with me. Thank you for silence with me. Thank you for holding me 
and saying I could be. Thank you for saying baby. Thank you for holding me. Thank you for helping me. Thank you. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for breaking my heart. Thank you for tearing me apart. Now I am a strong, strong heart. Thank you for breaking my heart. Hmm. So the songwriter was John Charles Reynolds. Um, but if you hear her version, as with many of her songs, they just get in there and rip your heart out. That was the first song that I listened to after I heard that she passed. Like that song for me captures the depth of what she can do in music, which is hold these really, really complex parts of our experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like that lyric is very her. Hmm. So if people have questions about her life that they'd like us to answer and like us to go deeper into, we'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just put in the email to Rebecca or Rebecca Sode or, well, those two words, really. <laughs> this is a Rebecca Sode. <laughs> so, all right, let's take a break and we get back. Let's read some emails. What do you say? I'm, I'm down. Okay, so we're back from the break. This is not an email. I lied earlier. <laughs> this is a HuffPo article that people sent to us to talk about. So it's about Drew Barrymore. Ooh. It's, it's uh, an article by Elise Wanchel on HuffPo titled, Drew Barrymore's Therapist Responds to Her Account That He Quit Due to Her Drinking. So did you hear this story? No. It apparently uh, uh, hit, she had a therapist who said, I can't treat you anymore because you're drinking. So I'm just going to read excerpts here. Okay. Drew Barrymore told the Los Angeles Times earlier this week, this would have been, I don't know, months ago, that Michaels, known for treating Gwyneth Paltrow and for co-authoring the book The Tools with Phil Stutz, uh, just chiming in here, I reacted to the documentary made by uh, Jonah Hill, who... Hi, it was a whole documentary just about how awesome Phil Stutz was as a as a therapist for the stars in LA. And although I don't doubt that he's a great clinician and uh, helping a lot of people, but some of the claims made by him and in the documentary were spurious at best. Uh, most notably that he had invented an entire form of therapy that no one had ever come close to. And all I could see was so many people of his generation uh, a very you know, it's so narrative based like and the, and the new york times did an article on him like 10 years ago and phil I stutz yeah oh you've heard of him before. oh yeah i remember reading the article just because everybody's like you got to watch this documentary and i'm like i read the article 10 years ago i don't need to see the documentary he, he's straight down the middle like a humanistic uh, gestalty kind right, of therapist he like, Ooh, he sends his clients home with questions on cards like it's this is straight up narrative therapy everyone like this stuff is really really old yeah so and it's it, and it's fine but it's don't great. claim that you right. invented it yeah. that's so narcissistic and right. just out of touch and any therapist who knows anything would say he didn't invent that so uh and also just i don't know so Apparently, this Michael's character is a Phil Stutz friend. Um, so, 
by association, I'm a little concerned. But anyway, so uh, that Michael's previously stopped sessions with Drew Barrymore after a decade of working together. She explained that following her 2016 divorce with Will Kopelman, she began drinking again, and Michaels, the therapist, was concerned about her alcohol intake. The therapist is providing a bit more insight as to why he temporarily stopped working with her as a client. Just before we go going on, what are your, uh, you know, what are your thoughts about a therapist that stops working with a client who is drinking? I mean, this is actually quite common. A lot of therapists will say, if you're heavily using substances, I can't work with you until you've chilled out. I'm not trained in how to do that. Many, many therapists are only trained in abstinence models and not harm reduction models. So this is very common. I mean, I, and I have said a flip as someone once came to me to for an intake and they were like, by the way, I'm heavily drinking like every night. And I said, hey, just so you know, this work won't stick if you're heavily drinking. You'll have to come back later and do why doesn't it stick? Because your brain is in an altered state. You are numb. <laughs> and this work is about not being numb. Um, and if you're, this is why you can't, this is why you don't drink in the therapy session, even though tons of people would like to. And some do. Yeah, we're trying to stay. What about present. if someone smoked weed during, before a session? Because some people smoke weed all day. They take edibles. Yeah. I mean, I, it is they are in that state and if they get un in that state they'll have to do the work again mm -hmm. because and and the therapist and the client aren't on the same plane of existence mm. um so i've had clients be like can i just smoke a bowl before i come in and i'm like you know we won't be doing the work that i do you will be high sitting with me if that's what you need to do mm. i'd rather you not in fact Please don't. I don't want to be high while I'm trying to do therapy. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to be high while I'm trying to do therapy with you. Yeah. yeah. So, of course, drinking alcohol and numbing out through any substance is a, a problem in a variety of ways, let alone to therapy. But for me, I have a, I don't have a hard line around that. Um, I, if I heard that someone was drinking every night heavily of course we would have a conversation but i'm much more uh, flexible hands off i guess and i just don't have that that party line i would contemplate especially at the beginning of therapy recommending that they go into treatment and then come into me later but if midway through treatment i learn for example that that this is what's happening I would just integrate it into the conversation. It's probably a symptom of the very thing they're, they're wanting to get healing from. Right. And I'm curious if he has worked, if Michael? Michaels. Michaels has worked with Drew Barrymore for a long time and can see a massive behavior change right. with her drinking. He may be setting his own limits about his practice, knowing the model that he does will not work if she's heavily drinking. Right. It's also potentially a Al-Anon sort of mm -hmm. intervention of, I can't, I can't stand by and enable and placate your self-destruction by acting like everything is normal when everything mm -hmm. is not normal. And you refuse to address this. And I'm worried about you. And I am altruistically saying to you, you 
we can't do this while you're engaging in that self-destruction. It's too painful to me. And as your clinician, I'm being irresponsible by enabling this, by just acting like it's not happening. So So I had a client who uh, told me about their reckless driving. Hmm. And I was like, dude, if you're doing that, like, I can't work with you. Like, you're literally, like, running stoplights purposefully, like, not viewing. Suicidally? Mm, There had been a, you know, when there's a death in the family and people are, like, flirting with death? Yeah. And I was like, this is a symptom of your grief. Yeah. You are not actively suicidal, but you are playing with the rules of society. I mean, right, it's almost playing. worse because yeah. you're... And you're endangering other people. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you're making this choice, it is too dangerous for me to work with you. And, like, I am on the verge of reporting you to the cops mm-hmm. if you continue to do this because yeah. you're putting so many people in danger. Yeah, so, I mean, this is straight up the middle the Peterson case Mm. for our duty to protect Mm -hmm. in in Washington state, the court precedent that was uh, involved as a very similar case was involved and the clinician uh, uh, didn't take action because they didn't think it was Tarasov. They didn't think Mm -hmm. it was reportable. You know, they thought that confidentiality dictated they not reach out. But for us in Washington state, it seems as though, those kinds of situations and all the other similar situations actually dictate that you and I actually do reasonably take reasonable action, um, even if it means breaking confidentiality. So, right. so I just back to Michael's, you know, is Drew Barrymore's drinking impacting her relationship with her children? Like, you know, I mean, I, I, it's hard to know. We don't it's know. It's hard to know. We yeah. don't know. Although, yeah. go on. <laughs> uh, a little bit about weed and uh, an asterisk about weed because weed is potentially less intoxicating if you take it at sort of a maintenance level uh, and people will come into session or work all day having a, a you know a moderate to mild dose right. of weed. I know of weed. people that are high all day. Every yeah. Day. <laughs> and, uh, you, and for them... It might be pain management. It might be appetite management. It might be trauma, anxiety management. Yeah. Um, And also, you know, I mean, we talk about the poor man's vacation, right? Like, not everybody has access to psych meds. Not everybody's found a psych med that works. Yeah. Um, You know, weed is definitely an option. If somebody is blazingly high. Right. It's not going to work. Yeah, it's just hard. You know, I've I've had I've had clients who have come to session blazingly high, and it's annoying because I can tell they're altered and they're not exactly with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, I me I, I'm I'm not going to kick someone out of therapy because they do that. I'm just going to mm-hmm. be like, yeah, maybe next time don't smoke as much in the car <laughs> in my in my parking lot, <laughs> like maybe smoke less and maybe a couple hours before therapy. Um, so, you know, call it what you will. And I have a big history with this because mm-hmm. I was fired from my very first internship oh. after just like six weeks of supervision. And one of the paragraphs that was given to me by this supervisor, who I later learned I was his very first supervisee. Mm. And uh, he said that he asked me, uh, and I remember this distinctly. He asked me, like, "What would you do if you had a client that was um, in the, you know, drinking, had a problem with alcohol, 
what would you do? And I said, well, because I'd learned this, because what the fuck do I know? I'm, right. I'm 25, <laughs> and I, I, I was told by a professor that the standard is to terminate, refer, and when they're sober, that you say, come back to me. Mm. And I said that, and then I said, but I've also heard that there's some flexibility there, but I don't know. I'm, t- you know, my supervisor's asking me, mm-hmm. and I'm four weeks into my internship, so I, I recognize I don't know anything, <laughs> and I—that's I, I, the way I answered it. But he said that I was being unethical by oh. allowing the possibility for therapy to continue with someone in the throes oh God, of addiction. So he fired you? So yeah, I was fired from my internship. Oh, yeah, and I thought uh, at the time when he gave me that that letter, I thought, well. I guess I didn't know because I didn't know. And so I gave my, I didn't know answer and then I get fired and I don't know. And I'm thinking I must be a bad, he's Mm -hmm. a supervisor. He knows, he knows. I don't know. Mm -hmm. He knows that I'm a bad therapist. So I must be a bad therapist. So I quit. And I went to Antioch and, um, uh, someone God, i can't remember his name do you remember the the old dean of psychology the psychology department oh it's so t- t- tony Co- tony collis tony collis that's pre me tony oh pre you he was a a very beautiful man who i just wandered through the halls of antioch and i went into his office and he talked me down mm-hmm. and he said just you know it's not good but mm-hmm. it happens and we're going to make it through this. And we'll make it through this. If it happens again, Kirk, <laughs> then we have a problem. <laughs> but, so get it together. But one time, it's Dessa Mulligan. Anyway, so going on with the article. The therapist is writing a bit more insight. Uh, quote, occasionally a therapist has to suspend treatment until a patient is willing to stop certain chronic self-destructive behaviors that are impeding the therapy. Unquote. Michaels confirmed to the Times that he and Barrymore have since resumed their sessions mm-hmm. because Barrymore decided to stop drinking. Can I just say one thing? That there are certain types of clients, certain especially famous clients, that have so many yes people around them and so many buffers around them yeah. that their lives are different than, say, my client, who I am their primary support in the world, and I say, hey, if you're doing this, I can't see you. They self-reported that they changed their behavior. Mm. But my, from what I've heard from treating, treating famous people is they've got, or rich, really rich people, they've got more of a buffer around them mm-hmm. and their bad behavior can kind of last longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, yeah. All right, so let's take a break. Okay. And then the next one, definitely an email. What do you say? I'm in. All right, back from the break. So, listener Holly from Ohio says, Hi, Kirk and Rebecca. I thoroughly enjoyed your episode on Ultimatum Queer Love. I was wondering, do you think some of the villainizing of Vanessa... Do you remember Vanessa? Oh, yes. Who could ever... All of this is, like, burned into my memory. Do you think that had to do with the fact that she is pansexual? Mm -hmm. As far as I'm aware, she's the only cast member who does not identify as a lesbian. As a bisexual person myself, I see a lot of bi-panphobia within both queer and heteronormative spaces. Bi-pan people are often painted as more promiscuous, dishonest, cheaters, attention seekers, and there's a notion that they can never be content with a given partner. I think that this is prejudice, along with Vanessa's sexual free attitude, could have been the factor that turned her into the target of Lexi and Yoli's bullying. 
which is ironic because if anyone on the show was being shady and unfaithful, it was definitely Yoli. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks. What do you think? So first off, uh, yesterday was National Bisexual Pride Day. So, hmm. And I have learned that the most marginalized, most impacted by prejudice group in the alphabet soup LGBTQIA community are bisexuals. Um, or, and I'm old, so I use the word bisexual, pansexual, omnisexual interchangeably. I know for some people in those communities, those things are very different. Um, but yeah, I mean, her. so Vanessa's rules around sexuality were different than some of the other members of um, Queer Love Ultimatum. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you were later to look at Yoli's behavior, she was very, uh, she was the most poly of the group in a way. She was open to the most lovers mm-hmm. of the group. Yeah, well, you tell me, because my, <laughs> my impression, uh, of course, bisexual people to the heteronormative culture, over, you know, especially in the past, it, it was just lumped into, well, you're not hetero, so you're sinning, or mm-hmm. you're disgusting, or you're uh, a pedophile, or something, you know, all those false associations. Um, but you would think that gay people would be totally cool with bi people, but... Traditionally, my impression was, and of course, gay people aren't a monolith, but the things that I would hear and observe was that there was a prejudice that, oh, you're not admitting to yourself that you're gay, that you're... Or you are taking advantage... I mean, so this is just to speak of the language that I have heard over the years. You are taking advantage of us. You will pop in, use us as lovers, and then pop out when you want the heteros... And this is... Well, yeah. I guess it's true for gay men as well, but this idea that like there are so much more benefits for being in the quote straight world and being in a quote straight relationship. Right. And you can imagine someone being hurt by that, right? That gay women fall in love and person A, <laughs> say Vanessa breaks up with Xander or something. And then Vanessa's next relationship is a man, gets married, has the white picket fence. You could imagine the Xanders of the world feeling like garbage and rejected, not only because of who they are, but also their sexuality. It's just like, yeah, you you bopped into my world and ruined my life, and now mm-hmm. you're going back to your privilege, and you get all the perks of being hetero and you don't have to worry about it. And I'm left here not only with my grief and pain and loss, but also with the oppression. You know, you can imagine perspective setting in. But when you consider that maybe that was just the course of their life, you know, for the Vanessas of the world that are pansexual, it might not have been malicious or somehow disingenuous for them to have fallen in love with the Xander, this fictional story. You know what I mean? So those kind of pre- prejudices, do they persist within? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say the biggest one is don't just bop into my world. Like, you, you can identify as bisexual, and I'm, <laughs> I'm speaking as a part of my community right now, not as my personal opinion. Um, you know, you can, if you're going to identify as bisexual, please be bisexual really openly, and not just like when you come and visit the 
queer community and then bop out to your straight life, right? Mm. Like, there is this idea that if you're going to really represent us, really be open about who you are. Mm. Um, because otherwise... How would they do that? Would they, they tell straight people that they're bi? Yeah. 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 I mean, just be just be out about being bi, being, being out that you've had lovers of all kinds of genders and... Um, you know, you may be perceived as being straight. And I'm really speaking now of having been in the parenting world for, you know, all those years <laughs> that, you know, women would like take me aside and tell me that they were bisexual. And I'm like, why are you telling me? <laughs> like, just tell everybody. Um, you know, I don't need to like, quote, like hold this secret for you. Like, just please be open with who you are. That would make my life a lot easier. The fact that you're going to like pull me aside and tell me that like, you've been with women like that puts burden on me to hold this quote secret for you as opposed to like i can't hold a secret like people may not perceive that i was in a lesbian relationship but i am mm-hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I i feel like i've heard that a lot does that happen a lot it happens a lot yeah well what is what's the motivation there do you think what's happening I, they are so excited to find an ally um not understanding that it's kind of a burden to only ask me to be an ally Mm-hmm. And you have to be a silent ally. Right. I'm not allowed to be like, hey, she's bisexual. Just She's been with women, too. Yeah. I'm not the only queer woman in this room. What a relief, yeah. right? Huh. Um, that I have to be like, I'm still like the one out queer person, and everybody's going to come to me with their queer questions. Yeah. When it's like, I don't really want that job. I mean, the bigger villain here is the heteronormative, oppressive culture that forces all y'all to somehow wrestle with whatever kind of safety and right. space. Right, when it's safe could... to come out, who would you come out to? Yeah. Well, I, I feel like there's another, and I don't know this, I don't. I haven't heard this one very often, but the notion that if, for example, a gay woman were to you know, go on a couple of dates with another woman at, that she thinks is lesbian, but then it's revealed that this other person is, is bi or pan, and... That person says, um, yeah, I mean, my last long-term relationship with, with, was with a man. I mean, I'm sure. So there is a, there is status. Do you know what a gold star lesbian is? No. Really? Uh, so a gold star lesbian is a lesbian that's never been with a man. Hmm. So there is status in that. Um, but a friend of mine told me that when so she identifies as lesbian, and when she began dating after a divorce, she looked she found the best partners for her were bisexual women who were poly, that those women fit what she needed the most. And I would say that was a real flip from the way I was brought up. But she was like, it's great. Like they have a primary nesting partner. We have great sex. It totally works for me. They don't need me to be their one and only because there's a problem in lesbian relationships. You know, what does a lesbian bring on the second date? A U-Haul? Right, yeah. That, you know, sometimes if you are looking for a primary lesbian nesting partner, like, things can get too intense too fast. Um, So the idea that if somebody is pansexual and poly, that's great. (laughs) Like, you know, they're not going to come swooping into my life and, like, overwhelm me. Mm -hmm. Um, So... You know, I would say things have changed radically. Mm-hmm. The language that people use and the acceptance that people mm-hmm. have. And that there's so many ways to date now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I mean, that's why people use the word queer, right? Because you don't have to be specific of who all of your partners have been. Yeah. And, you know, being older, you and I, I re- we remember the times when there was so much oppression and yeah. so much hostility and literal murder mm-hmm. of queer people that there was a, a need to build a fence and say, no one can come in here unless you pass certain tests, mm-hmm. you know, because we have learned that we will die or be harmed or outed or fired from our jobs or kicked out of the military if we don't have some sort of hard line. And I could see that being misapplied to by people who are legit allies or legit within the LGBTQIA community, but are seen as potentially suspicious. It's just easier maybe to say, well, unless you're all in, then we don't know what's going on with, you know, you could see how bi people would be really stuck in that middle zone, right? Yeah. And some of the biggest, most powerful people who've changed the most, been the most out changed queer society, the most been some of the bi women that I've had in my life. So you know, I think when you're young or new at this, it can feel very like, you know, you're not all the way in. But like when I look at the longitudinal story of my life, like, thank God for the bi women in my life. Were you kind of like that when you were younger? <sighs> you know, when you come out, there is an identity process where you need to push everyone away. But pretty quickly, one of my dearest friends was bi. And there was, you know, they, her and her male partner and us, me and my female partner, we spent tons and tons of time together and there was no judgment or, you know. And then her next partner was a trans man. Um, So, you know, when you've been at this long enough, you've seen that like life takes a lot of, you know, people's lives take a lot of paths. Mm. Um, And, and, uh, you know, there's the great quote from Schitt's Creek where David says it's not the label it's the wine right like you know when when you've lived a lot of life you're like i'm looking for good people i don't care what you call yourself (laughs) i don't care where you spend your time can we be good people together Mm. um so yeah i think things change Mm -hmm. over time but i definitely you know you you see people in those militant phases all the time who are just like i only want to be with x you know right now it's trans for trans um in a lot of <laughs> communities that I see, people are only looking to hang out with other trans people because that's where they feel safe. Mm-hmm. But it's like that identity is really new. Um, and I see the same intensity of when I was coming out as a lesbian. And it was like, I only want to be with lesbians. Mm-hmm. Those are the only people who get it. Mm. Yeah, which I, I totally get. And at the same time, it's unfortunate that some groups of also oppressed people get left behind you know what i mean right yeah no i mean (laughs) is the queer community overarchingly kind and welcoming Mm. oh i thought you were gonna say yes (laughs) i I thought the the way that was heading i thought you would say yes of course but there are some pockets right it can be be pretty siloed and like we are looking for people exact i am looking for someone exactly like me oh and anyone else like still to this to this oh yeah and then with the internet it gets even worse right because you can like super like 
I want to talk to this skinny wedge of humans. Yeah. Only this skinny wedge of humans. Like, this is really interesting. I just did the three-day intensive of um, the tarot and therapy. And so, the last card that we talk about is the King of Swords, which is, like, the most positive male identity that's out there. And even in the two or three years that I've been doing that workshop, there is no positive male identity. Like I said to the group, who is your most positive, powerful male person? And like, no one said anything. And like a year ago, everybody was saying the president of the Ukraine. But it's like, the way our culture is working right now, no one can trust male identity. <laughs> like, no one is like willing to say a name because, like, will that person fall from grace tomorrow? Right? Like, we're all very suspicious. Of well, each also, other. it's kind of sticking your neck out a little bit because it's hard to know if someone is perfect. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's always, and also, if you dig it down deep enough, all men have sexism in their bones because it was infused when they were developing. Um, so I want to remind everyone that Rebecca is on, or no, not remind, but announce that Rebecca is on Cameo. I know, it just happened. Well, it happened a while ago, but it's been a while since it's been on the podcast. We had like this three-month break. Something weird happened. It was like the summer was a vortex. Yeah, well, yeah. So I want to invite everyone to get cameos from Rebecca or send cameos. You can get your own cameo. People do that sometimes. Get, I just yeah, wanna, if you want to talk to me, if you want me to pull a tarot card for you. Ooh, yeah. I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. I think it'd be a really fun way to connect with folks. Yeah. And I, uh, I get a, a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment from cameo myself, uh, which I've talked about before. It's a little kind of treat every couple days or so, and I get to say happy birthday or um, hear about someone's accomplishments of graduation or um, overcoming cancer or something. You know, it's it's uh, it's nice to be able to. It just feels good to be able to congratulate people and to just get to know people a little bit. And and people have asked me what it's like, what my experience is like being an accidental podcaster on an internationally well-loved podcast and i'm like it's crazy magic it's crazy magic to hear from listeners from all over the world to get thoughts from people to see images of people to get fan art we just got a bunch of fan art Mm -hmm. i'm like this is so crazy if i could have told my high school self like just hang in there there's a whole nice world out there Mm -hmm. I, would, I couldn't have believed the world that you built with this podcast. Yeah, what did you think about Soft Doodle's comic strip? Oh my God, it was so sweet. I sent it to everyone. I got a lovely version. It's her, Soft Doodles is in the middle, and then it's my things that she thinks I would think are all around her. And they are things that I think, and I just thought this was like so great. Yeah, I was like, fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> Make uh, art, be queer. Oh, and then at the bottom, somebody wrote into her comments, you didn't mention anything about no turmeric, and so she wrote at the bottom, Oh right, no turmeric. Yeah, that was great. I was like, oh, <laughs> soft doodles listens to Rebecca Sodes. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a kind of a deep cut a little bit. Um, okay, one more email. Anonymous okay. patron, she says, oh, sorry, two more emails. This is a short one. Anonymous patron, she says, any recommendations on books that explore attachments mm. and eating disorders? This uh, there's such an array of literature out there. I'd welcome a tip to, on where to start. Many things. 
Um, I gotta look that one up. You talk for a while. Well, I don't have an answer to this because my my general answer is ninety nine point nine percent of the times I do not have book recommendations because I'm terrible at that sort of thing. I wish I was better. So I just want to blanketly tell everyone uh, the only books that I can possibly think to recommend are on the website. You go to psychologyseattle.com and just click around until you find the book recommendations. There's a pretty long list there, but there are a lot of academic books because that's really where I live. I don't live in the self-help world. So I, I'm guessing, though, that there are a lot of really great books out there is the thing. So a lot of my clients love this intuitive eating model. And for my folks who have expressed the most success with um, overcoming disorganized eating, it's been discovering their own intuitive eating style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am just currently, I'm sitting here on my phone on Amazon, just scrolling through books and seeing. What well, yeah, to, to me, intuitive eating, I believe, well, I'll just tell how I perceive it myself how i absorbed it was that it's listening to your body and yeah. it's valuing yourself and not listening to all of the fat phobia not listening to all the diet culture not listening to whatever oppressive uh, messages you got from your parents just you know slowing down and and paying attention to what you need which you know, depending on what that means could go a lot of different ways. But to me, for myself, Kirk, it just pushes out all the nonsense, you know, because for Americans, we tend to think about diet as something you need to like follow this, this guru or something or this regimen or this plan or this diet or this restriction. And it, it, it's so much noise in one's head that you forget to listen to your body. <laughs> so I got a quick question from annual upper tier patron, Alexander. She says, dear Dr. Kirk and Rebecca, thank you, Dr. Kirk for asking Bob my question and answering it yourself too. I want to ask the same question to Rebecca. What is your therapist superpower? Oh, what is my therapist? I'm really funny. Yeah. <laughs> you laugh a lot. In, I laugh in, a lot. In session. I make other people laugh. Uh, nice. And I have heard, from and I'm really trauma informed. I'm learning that that's my superpower. I don't expect anything to happen. I don't expect my way to work. If, yeah, I'm just I'm willing to sit with people who are really lost. Yeah, that's I mean that that's from my impression what I would say as well that you're very good at normalizing and highlighting and creating a safe space for people to be themselves and to talk about their trauma, which sounds like, well, duh, shouldn't all. It's not easy to do. Yeah. It's rare. It's a vibe that you have. Yeah. Uh, And a philosophy and uh, an emphasis, the way you um, sigh, for example, you know, it, it, it it sells, it communicates something like I'm with you, you know, I, 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 and I, I know, <laughs> and also it encourage. I'm, I'm guessing if someone came to you downplaying or minimizing their trauma, that your vibe would be perfect to help them to recognize that it's okay. 
to express it. Yeah, I just had a client who'd been in a lot of therapy the other day, and she came to me, and she, well, you know, we're getting to know each other, and she said, you know, when I was having sex with my stepfather, and I said, you weren't having sex with your stepfather. You mean when your your stepfather was sexually abusing you? Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh, right. I was like, yeah. So just so you know, in our, I said this to her as a therapist, like in our work, I'm going to always correct that. Mm -hmm. She was like, wow, no one's ever done that. I was like, yeah, well, I'm paying attention Mm -hmm. to how you speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mindset. It's a recognition. It's a mode and a vibe that I'm sure is very, very helpful to people. Last question. Middle tier patron Fatima or Fatima. I've heard both. Fatima. I've heard, I've had friends that pronounce it Fatima and Fatima. From Chicago, she says, what do you think of the trend of people self-diagnosing themselves with autism based on information they gather from TikTok? TikTok. (laughs) More broadly, what do you think about the fact that people are pathologizing their behavior without the input of a professional? My impression is this can be deeply validating for some people, but because they lack the context and the frameworks of a trained professional, their assessments can be inaccurate and exaggerated. What do you think? You know, it's a very, we're all as as professionals just trying to catch up that people have access to so much information. Um, One of the things that really happened in the pandemic is so many more people identify as being on the spectrum now than before. Um, You know, if that's the only thing you have access to to understand your behavior, I hope that TikTok really helps. There's always the difference between just being able to like label yourself and then if there's true... I don't want to say pathology or true ways that your behavior really impacts your life. Do you need to check in with someone else and learn some skills for that? So one of the things I really noticed with, for a while it was really popular for women my age and a little bit younger to to self-diagnose as having ADHD. And then one of the things that would happen, they would say like, so I have time blindness and therefore I can never show up on time. It's like, I don't know if that's exactly how this is supposed to work, but I, it's one of my favorite comedians on Instagram would say, as they say in LA, but I really love that journey for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I still need you to interact with you. And, uh, you know, the fact that you're never on time is, is that how you're going to live from here on out? And is that, is our friendship going to work? <laughs> yeah. As if. It's impossible to change that. Mm -hmm. It's a factual thing that because of this diagnosis that I have attributed to me and because of my misunderstanding of that diagnosis, I am now telling you that I don't have to regard your feelings. Right. Uh, So, yeah. Now, might some people who are neurodivergent have a harder time being on time? Sure. But um, it doesn't mean it's impossible. And at the very least, you could say, I'm so sorry that I'm late. I really tried. And because of my neurodivergence, it gets in the way, but I'm sorry. You know, that's a different statement yeah. than deal with it, honey. Right. Um, but I also, I mean, I think it's great for people that I know who've always felt so, so different. Um, the way that social media puts thousands of people in front of you who look just like you and act just like you. It's, mm-hmm. I know it's been very confirming yeah. for a lot of people. Can you diagnose somebody from watching a... Can you diagnose yourself from watching a three... I mean, it's like, how long do you get? A minute? 
15 um, seconds? It used to be a minute, but I think they extended it on okay. TikTok, but I don't, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, so it, there's a lot of things one could say, but briefly just sort of piggybacking on what Rebecca is saying, it's both good and bad. On the good side, it's exposing a lot of people to ideas that they never would have been exposed to before. It's liberating a lot of people. It's getting them the ball rolling with them going to therapy. We've seen a huge, I think, huge uptick in demand for and therapy. And acceptance of therapy. Mm-hmm. And presumably there's a lot of people who are misdiagnosing themselves on TikTok, and they, <laughs> but they go to a therapist and then there's a, a, a you know, a, a good assessment that takes place and conversations along those lines in the therapy office. Um, the bad side is that there's a lot of people who are misdiagnosing themselves and others going down roads that are not good for them, are harming them and harming other people. And using diagnoses as a judgment, right? Like, oh, that person's borderline or they're mm-hmm. bipolar. And, um, you know, misuse of term or and demeaning people like, oh my God, I'm so ADHD or I'm so o- OCD or that's gaslighting me when it's not used appropriately and people who are actually suffering from those disorders or have been abused through gaslighting are like, wow, I can't believe that you're just taking my mm-hmm. whole history and my struggle and reducing it to, you know, if you suffer from legit OCD and someone says, oh my God, I'm so OCD, I really want my pencils to be lined up sometimes. It, it's completely demeaning. It'd be like someone saying, um, oh my God, uh, my stomach hurts. I have cancer. I'm going to die. And then that's just the way people talk. It's like, well, do you know how hurtful that is to people who actually have cancer (laughs) like you're just playing around with the pain of millions and millions of people and the and i always try to describe to people to really understand what might impact you a minute out of the day impacts someone else every minute of every day Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to uh understand that if you're not actually seeing it Mm -hmm. and that's something i feel like as professionals we understand differently is what it looks like if it's truly lessening your ability to enjoy life, Mm -hmm. which is different than I have this little thing that's kind of annoying that I do. Yeah. Quirky. Uh, So, but there's probably a lot of people in the middle of the good and the bad where there are lots of people. And I imagine this, my impression is that 99% of what's on TikTok regarding psychology is, uh, false or wrong-headed or weird or bad or not based on evidence or something misguided misinformation like i did a series of reacting to tiktok videos and i just typed in psychology in the search bar mm. in tiktok and i don't know if there was one thing that i saw that wasn't just completely laughable you know the the algorithm it does it, it encourage even if it's stupid it gets uh, preferred by the algorithm because it's causing a reaction. People are commenting or whatever. And so uh, these social media platforms, they encourage misinformation. But I imagine there's a lot of people in this middle zone where they're being absolutely misinformed and miseducated and misguided. And there isn't necessarily a negative consequence to it. They're just oblivious to uh, the language and the concepts within our field, which doesn't feel great to me, but... I'd almost rather take it because in the past people would say, wasn't therapy for like crazy people. Mm -hmm. So 
I'd rather take Wait, this. We swung really far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, be careful what you ask for. Because, right. you know, we've been advocating for mental health awareness, uh, mental, mental, health, mental health awareness, and, and also therapy destabilization for decades. It's happening, and this is a consequence that I don't think any of us really predicted. I know, we could have never imagined. And we could have never imagined the amount. So there's a great documentary, I think it's on Amazon could be on netflix called andy warhol's diaries mm. it's four parters i could i after the first one i needed like a three-week break um, but it talks about how andy warhol predicted this universe where everybody could be famous and um you know there's some interesting things that occur when everybody can be famous and that everybody's opinion suddenly has equal weight and there's not a lot of curiosity about you know, being a professional has no weight anymore. Um, and yet I find it really interesting when people come to me and they say, this is what I've heard. And I'm like, oh, that's not quite right. You know, like someone asked me, the myth in their family is that alcoholism skipped a generation because <laughs> it happened in their family that it had skipped a generation. And we had a really interesting conversation about that. Like, that is a myth that your family told you, right? Like, all you have is the evidence in front of you. Mm -hmm. And so you make a story up about it. But, like, in my field, does alcoholism skip a generation? No. <laughs> like, alcoholism happens in every generation. Mm. But their family was this anomaly, and so that they had decided that that was true. Right. Um, and so, you know, I mean, these things get really interesting. And then that's the family's whole story, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, God, you know, should I have children? Alcohol skipped my generation, but is my child going to be an alcoholic? And I was like, that's not how it works. Yeah. Um, so it is really interesting how these things show up for yeah people. and that happened before social media right. it, it, it it's just now out and about and we see all of it <laughs> you and can you search see it, it and you see it at you know one in the morning when your brain is like oh <laughs> look, yeah. i'm awake and that must be true and now i'll stay awake till you know three in the morning thinking about this yeah as opposed to like you used to not so one of my favorite drag queens bob the drag queen is this hysterical routine about what it used to be like to try and watch porn on the family computer and like to sneak out and turn on AOL in the middle of the night and beep boop beep boop boop you know have all these like loud noises happen and how you know his little niece will never know the experience of like having to learn information in public right like you know I mean now we can all like access anything at any time mm. and our brains are not set up for it mm -hmm. yeah yeah well Let's adjourn there. And and I'll see you more often than I've seen you lately. Yeah. We'll have to do this maybe at an increased pace yes. to, to make up for the past few months. This lackadaisical summer that we had. You were horribly ill. I got horribly busy. Yeah. We got old. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's a thing. Uh, so if you want to write in to Rebecca, Please. say hi, Rebecca, or Rebecca Sod or something. And we are still trying to build my instagram following i'm oh, yeah. still trying to get to is it 1200 or 1400 i'm still trying to Something get like that yeah. our text r-t-e-x-t -E on instagram and the tarot deck uh therapist who tarot on etsy if you're looking to get into tarot people are loving it mm -hmm. so they they can find it what's the title uh therapist who tarot deck it's on etsy selling like hotcakes so i've set two to australia Singapore, Canada, cool. Venezuela, 
an army base somewhere in Europe that I'm not allowed to know where she is. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us. And thanks for joining me, Rebecca. And everyone, please take care of yourself because... Please take care of yourself. The holidays are coming. So we want you to really take care of yourself through that time.